increasing problem. I'd like to ask you both, first of all, Marion, and then, then Claude, and uh, about those two, those two particular things, and then, then we'll see how they might intersect. So Marion, tell us about Well, I wrote a book about, uh, called Soda Politics, um, which is really a book about food advocacy and how to advocate for social change around food. I practice, unlike Claude, I practice sociology without a license. Um, <laughs> but the, um, I, I picked sodas to, to write about because they're a really easy target. They're sugars and water and nothing else of redeeming um, nutritional value. And in the United States, at least, their consumption has gone down dramatically over the last 15 years, probably by about a third. Um, and this has had an enormous effect on the companies that produce them, mainly Coca-Cola and PepsiCo, who have had to respond by making lots of other kinds of products and figuring out how to market their products more effectively and then moving their marketing overseas into the developing world in order to make up for the shortfall in sales. There's a lot to talk about there. Um, it's a 500-page book, <laughs> uh, and not surprisingly, and one of the things I included in it was a discussion of the way that Coca-Cola in particular has paid for research that would help with its marketing and help oppose the efforts to try to reduce consumption, and that issue has become the subject of the book I'm currently working on. Okay. Okay, well, we'll let you work on the book and won't ask you specific questions about it because I know books are, things need to be thought out. The soda industry mounted a phenomenal lobbying campaign that was very successful. Uh, it occurred in 2009 at a time when Congress was considering a national soda tax. Uh, and the soda industry increased its lobbying expenditure from roughly two or three million dollars a year to 40 million that year. Uh, and the, the, it never came anywhere. The, I think what you might be referring to is the soda cap on sizes that was proposed by Mayor Bloomberg in New York City. That is a story in itself because the mayor announced the cap on soda sizes at 16 ounces, or um, what is that roughly? It's about a pint, or almost a pint yeah, in most pint. places. So, I mean, it's a small amount, although the maximum amount of sugar that's recommended uh, by the World Health Organization and the American Dietary Guidelines is one 16 ounce soda that takes care of that. Uh, and that was, uh, that proposal met almost universal opposition, uh, in part because the mayor's office had not done any homework on it. There had been no effort to go out and try to get support for the measure. There had been no effort to reach out to the communities most affected by a soda tax that is poor communities who also have higher levels of obesity and type 2 diabetes. And the uh, soda industry spent unbelievable amounts of money to oppose the measure, fight it in every way possible. 
Um, and it was a disaster from the get-go. I think a perfect example of how not to do food advocacy. Were, were there lessons for policymaking that came from it, the lack of uh, involvement of, of different stakeholder groups and so on, or are there other things as well? That... Oh yes, Berkeley, California, yeah. for example, observed what had happened in New York and ran a soda tax campaign that was by the book, straight out of Saul Linsky, an organizer um, from years and years ago, and they did door-to-door -door canvassing and talking to people, I asked everybody in every community in Berkeley, Berkeley's a much smaller town than New York City, um, and so they were able to do enormous outreach into the community, asking everybody, did they have any relatives who had type 2 diabetes, did they understand the role of the soda industry in contributing to that diabetes. They also framed it, not as a public health issue, but as Berkeley versus Big Soda. That is very interesting. Uh, and they promised to use the funds from the soda tax for social and public health purposes, particularly in low-income communities. Um, and finally, they had Bloomberg funding to help with funding from the Bloomberg Foundation to help with their campaign, and it won by a vote of 76%, which was an astonishing achievement. And I think it set an example for how these kinds of things should be done. And I mean, across the US, do you see that sort of work happening, or is it, is it, is it quite patchy? Well, it's actually happening throughout the world. Yeah. There are now 28 countries that have passed or are considering soda taxes. In the United States, I believe there are eight cities that have mm -hmm. taken it up. Um, and some have passed, some haven't. They're done in different ways. Uh, but the general approach is pretty clear. You need to have funding for the campaign. It's probably best framed as an anti-corporate campaign because everybody gets it very quickly. And if the corporations then take actions that are as the soda industry did in Berkeley when they put advertisements in the public transportation system that had never taken advertisements before. People were very offended by that. Okay. That's very um, interesting. So many lessons. Many, many lessons. lessons to be learned and countries uh, all over, you know, and it solves two problems at once. Yeah. It generates funds for worthy purposes to the extent that they're being used for worthy purposes. Um, and it reduces soda consumption. Yeah, both good things. And I mean, do you see there's a sort of power in cities to be able to guide legislation for you know, nations? Well, I'm an American, and at the moment, um, to expect our national government to do anything like this is unrealistic. So it has to be at the local level to the extent that that's possible. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Powerful words, powerful words indeed. Turn now to Claude, Claude Fischler. And another, another uh, major issue, uh, you know, we know about the atomization of, of, of food habits, how people are eating uh, in isolation, sitting in front of their computers, skipping lunch. Can, can you tell us about your, your personal drive to, to uh, think through the, the issues of, of eating together and commensality? Well, it probably stems from uh um, comparing uh, approaches to, to food and eating in uh, 
various countries that I was visiting, and uh, particularly the U.S. versus France, or even Britain, and being astonished at the, the differences. And um, I found, for instance, uh, a book written by a French novelist and diplomat in the 30s describing lunchtime in New York and reporting already that people were either eating in front, not of their computer, but uh, <laughs> of their uh, work, I mean, uh, uh, their, their table or something, or in clubs, and I quote, or in, uh, I forget what you call them, some uh, cafeterias, I think, and uh, standing in line with their hats on their head, and um, uh, the, the writer was shocked by the fact that they were standing in line with their hats on their head uh, and eating in the same manner, very rapidly, foods that he considered fresh and uh, appetizing and cheaper than ours. So it was not so much the food that he objected to, it was the way in which it was consumed. And there was the converse, the opposite uh, quote that I found from a sociologist actually in the 50s who was interviewing about 200 personalities in France and uh, making the uh, passing comment that the French are rigid about everything uh, associated to food and eating and that mealtimes are exactly the same in all regions and the menu never varies and there's no creativity, people do not try something new for a change, they are invariab invariably associated such wine with such food, etc. and so forth. And I thought those quotes were very illuminating yeah. because uh, the American was commenting that uh, this thing about eating at the same time every day reminded non-French people, which actually translates to Americans, um, of the zoo. Okay. So, you know, it's interesting that uh, the other culture eats in a different manner, so it's considered like, like animal-like behavior. In one case, they were standing in line as in a stable, yes. and in the other case, it was as in a zoo, that they were eating every day at the same time. So anyway, this, this, the whole story brought me to uh, sort of think about the fact uh, the, what the differences were, and it's clear that Americans always thought, I mean, at least for a long time, uh, of eating as an individual thing, even though they keep talking about the family dinner. Mm -hmm. And when I was interviewing some Americans about eating together, they invariably commented and said, you mean Thanksgiving? <laughs> so once a year. Once. Something like that, yeah. yeah. So whereas the French and a number of European countries and um, actually I discovered quite a large part of the world um, actually experiences, experience eating as an almost exclusively collective experience. Mm -hmm. That for instance my, my, one of my students did a very nice ethnography of uh, midday uh, meal in Dakar, Senegal, and 
it matches a number of other African countries. Um, and it's a collective thing that you cannot evade. I mean, there's no way you can get away from it without being under suspicion of very serious things. Yeah. Like, you know, casting a spell on the food or something. There's no really, no, no reasonable reason uh, acceptable. And um, the um, code of manners is very specific, even though uh, the food is... Um, taken with the with a hand, the right hand. Uh, it looks like it's not particularly uh, sophisticated manners, but in fact there's a, there's a code of manners, how fast you're supposed to eat, uh, whether you should keep silent or not. Silent is better. Um, pushing the best morsels towards the uh, uh, older people or the uh, guests, or that sort of thing. So there are, Everything is, is uh, coded, and come to think of it, the same applies to most um, countries, including uh, the U.S. When the meal is taken together with the uh, children, uh, a lot is conveyed um, to the children implicitly or explicitly about the rules of the group and uh, very basic ethic, uh, ethical uh, principles of solidarity, hierarchy, uh, uh, and, and social relationships and everything. You're not supposed to eat faster than the other person. You're not supposed to help yourself first, that sort of thing. And um, You wait until everyone is served. Served. You don't yeah. uh, leave the table without being allowed to, that sort of thing. Okay. I don't know if Marin has any response to, to your comment about uh, um, the author saying Americans were eating like in a zoo. What, what do you think about that? No, it was the French. They were the eating mealtimes where like uh, when you're, you're, you, you advertise at what time the animals get fed. Yes, <laughs> yes that's right. And the, yes. French, uh, the French guy equated uh, the American behavior to standing in line like in a stable. Yes, yes. Yes. Well, we don't do lunch. You know, everyone is working. I, I mean, yeah. there's a... So it's fascinating to look at the difference in the way, for example, the American school lunch system works and, the French, and much has been written about the comparison of the French and American yeah. school systems and what the expectations are for the children's behavior. Well, yeah, not just the French, because we looked at the Spanish system and we looked... And basically it turns out that um, as far as Europe or Western uh, countries are considered, it's, it's, it really seems to boil down to a large extent to a historical um, anchoring of culture in Protestantism or Catholicism. <laughs> Do you think and so? It's like Oxford versus Cambridge. Well, what, 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 no, it's uh, it's more it's deeper than that, and there's no. Uh, um, you see, this 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 basic. Uh, I'm not getting into any theology here, but basically, the Protestant approach to things is that there's one individual in front of God directly. Yes. Free and responsible. Yes, that's okay. a significant difference, isn't it? It's a fundament, fundamental difference because in Catholic mindset or situation, there's confession, there's the bureaucracy or the organization of the church, yeah. there are uh, obscure uh, commissions, committees, organizations, etc., and everything. All right. 
So this this has been very clearly something that 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 was present when we did this com- first comparative study between um, six countries. There was the U.S. and France turned out to be the one the most distant poles, as it were. The, and when we, we discussed, and we, the, we had some qualitative and some quantitative data on representative samples, that, and when we analyzed it, we found that basically the difference was that two Americans, the, the Protestant countries, as well, the conception, the, 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 the way of uh, uh, conceiving of what a meal is was very different from the French. The French basically look at the meal as a communion. Mm. So you're all participating, as it as it were, in a replay of uh, you know the fundamental last uh, meal of Christ when he says, "This is my blood. This is my bread." And um, uh, if you are uh, a member or participant of that communion, communal a process, you're not going to make any fuss about whether the uh, host is gluten-free. Yeah, but to ask, <laughs> yeah, exactly, can I, absolutely. Can I ask you a question which, which, which occurs to me that um, in a way many countries, including France, including the United States, have become much more secular that to talk in terms of a Catholic-Protestant distinction. Do you think that this secularization means you get this removal of this sanctity of the No, no, I mean, I'm, 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 I just want to make it very clear that this has nothing to do with actual practice or belief yeah. in religion. It's just that um, religion has infused the culture uh, in a very obviously deep way and it becomes even clearer when you compare this way of thinking of the meal as communion mm. which prevents a number of people or prevented because it's changing rapidly now, uh, it prevented some people from actually stating their uh, eating uh, uh, the dietary restrictions like um, I interviewed a number of vegetarians and one of them was uh, telling me that in some cases when she was invited to some people that she didn't know too well, she wouldn't say that if, if meat was served she, was just, she would just eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, because in, in order not to feel excluded from the community and or, or to, in other words, when you eat in that kind of situation, it's not just you yourself and you, it's uh, it, it, it in, the fact of eating involves your relationship to other people. You, you, you're not just responsible of your own behavior. Now, when we did these similar interviews with, with Americans, it turned out that the meal was considered very differently. Uh, I'm going to have food with you. Um, it's a time span that we want to uh, use in the most pleasant and useful possible way, so we're going to try to get problems out of the way, so we're going to have a little negotiation before we uh, get together, and you know, it goes very well with the uh, Protestant mentality and the very Weberian, Weberian uh, sense. Uh, sense of, uh, you know, the Protestant ethics, etc. Uh, you just negotiate the way you're going to have this meal, and it's not a communion, it's a contract. 
that's that's such a fundamental difference. It's absolutely so basic. Do, do, do you think the world is moving more to contractually? Let's take France. I think there is a trend towards to in that in that direction. Obviously, because for instance, recently the number of uh, dietary expressing your dietary restrictions in France has mm -hmm. increased uh, quite. Uh, rapidly, although there still is no more than 3% uh, avowed uh, vegetarians, declared vegetarians, when you run uh, a survey compared to, what is it in, uh, in, in Britain, something like 12-14%. And, and um, um, yes, the number of, uh, some very basic things also, although you cannot really have solid data yet, we would like to, to do that. For instance, um, it used to be that no sweet drink was considered acceptable during a meal. Mm. So children were drinking water, and when they turned uh, 13 or 14, then maybe a drop of red wine was added to the water, and the color would get darker and darker <laughs> with age yeah. until they were allowed to taste yeah. pure wine. Uh, which was, of course, a very uh, initiative. Uh, initiative? No, there's no such word. I mean, it's an initiation process. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and now we have some indication that consumption of um, sweet drinks, including sodas, actually is is becoming more acceptable. Even though the consumption, the per capita consumption of soda in France is yeah. one of the lowest, it brings us back to to, to, to where we started in some ways. That uh, you know, soda is a problem in so many ways in so many places. And uh, do you think? Do you think? Well, do you think collectively? Do you think you know France should be moving more towards regulation of consumption of sodas, or it's not a problem? Or? I mean, there is there is a, a soda tax which is minimal now, but it is there, and um, there was a lot of discussion about it um, before it was um, taken. I don't think they um, someone knocked. Well, anyway, but I'd like I'd like to um, um, where was I? Um, <laughs> when, we, when we were interrupted. Oh yeah, I, well, I, was, I thought it was an important point. If you look at countries that have relatively, I mean, uh, when you have commensality, you have a number of uh, manifestations of a regulatory process, of social control or regulation of people's behavior. If you share a meal, you're not going to make a pig of yourself in the presence of others. If everybody make, makes a pig of themselves, okay. But um, basically there's an amount of, uh, and there is some uh, work that has been done to showing that there are such effects in influence modeling, uh, image management, etc. Um, so in those countries where there is this, this form of social control exerted upon uh, uh, eating, like I would say Japan or France, particularly Japan, uh, the difference in terms of uh, prevalence of obesity is um, really spectacular. 
And um, uh, there's very little, I mean, it's a complex thing, so I, I wouldn't want to oversimplify it. We're, we're in speculation in the end, you know, but uh, because there's, there's no real finally convincing data about this, but uh, there, are, there, there is some indication. Whereas in the, in the States, the main argument against any kind of regulation of food intake is that this is a nanny state effort. Um, so it's government and the culture itself is set up so that you think you have complete choice over whatever you eat. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I have so many friends who used to love to give dinner parties and now can't bear it because every single person they invite has some special dietary yeah. restriction. And the idea that you're going to serve a meal and that everyone will take what they want from it, but certainly not make a fuss. Yeah. Um, the, the expectation is that there will be a fuss. Yeah, I just want to make a, a, a point. I mean, I'm, I'm, my English has betrayed me, probably, but, or, or maybe there's a, a problem we'll with English. We'll try it in French and we'll regulation. translate it for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm saying regulation. Regulation is, there's government regulation and then there's Social thermodynamic regulation, yes. or that sort of thing. Yeah. I was thinking of the latter. Yeah. That is social influence mm -hmm. or control over people's uh, eating behavior. So, so in the end, I mean, if we can, we can summarize both in terms of thinking about the sort of regulation and consumption of soda, the regulation of personal eating. Both of these things really come down to thinking through how things should be should be appropriately regulated. Do you agree with that? Well, one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, if you have everyone doing something, everybody does everything on their own, then you have a breakdown of society. But you see, what, what this really boils down to in my mind is that nutrition is too serious an issue to be left to nutritionists alone. <laughs> With that, that, with that, we should probably end. And it's actually a very important point. We want to. to and I mean, the mind. social sciences should be part of nutrition, and they already are, I mean, yeah. to a large extent. No, absolutely. Claude Fischler, Marion Nessel, thank you very much. Pleasure.